Three, two, one, here we go. Rain Man's Take Podcast. Observations on the world we live in. My take on current events and other topics of interest. Also, interviews with some really cool people. So let's get the conversation going. Hey everybody, it's the Rain Man. Just want to give a quick shout out to everybody watching. Thank you very much. I know you're going to find this next interview thought-provoking. I enjoy spending time with people like my next guest and getting into more detail about the subject matter, and I know you appreciate that as well. So go ahead and hit the like button and subscribe. That way we can continue bringing you great content in the future. So thanks again for being part of Rain Man's Take, and enjoy the interview. Hey everybody, it's the Rain Man. I want to welcome back my guest, Jerry Hendricks. Jerry, how are you doing today? I'm good. It's great to be back with you. I think this is what my third visit with you. So, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm at regular status like David Letterman on the Carson <laughs> show, but I'm happy to be here. Well, I, and I and I certainly appreciate it because what we're going to be talking about today is all over the news right now. And you are definitely a, a, a go-to uh, person, all things Navy and all things uh, militaries as they worked their way around the, uh, uh, around the world in our oceans. So, uh, so I wanted to have Jerry back on. Um, as many of you remember, he is a, a consultant to the Department of Defense. He's a retired Navy captain, and uh, his expertise is, uh, is the world's navies and the U.S. Navy relationship with them and the concept of the free ocean and free movement uh, around the uh, globe's oceans. And Jerry just came out with an article in October in Foreign Policy Magazine titled, uh, Sea Power Makes Great Powers. And I wanted to have Jerry on to discuss that. We had talked briefly about this topic in a couple of our other interviews, but this is a very interesting uh, topic. And for anybody who is a uh, student of um, the grand chess game uh, and how, how uh, superpowers sort of interact with each other on a military basis. Um, this is a fascinating article. And um, I wanted to have him on because everything that's going on right now in, uh, in the world, especially in the South China Sea and Russia and Ukraine, um, it's all over the news right now. And so it's a very timely piece. So um, Jerry, thank you very much for joining me again. And why don't we go ahead and tell me a little bit about the article, what made you decide to write it and go from there? Well, I actually, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I wrote the book last December uh, on, uh, to provide and maintain a Navy. And that started this conversation. Um, and I did things like your podcast. And, and the thing is, is it, it got picked up. The, 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 the dialogue got picked up. People became interested in it. And so last spring, uh, actually, uh, Foreign Policy Magazine reached out to me and said, hey, we're thinking about doing an issue where we're looking at the maritime environment. So would you be interested in writing an essay for us? And I said, yes, absolutely. Uh, because one of the things I'm trying to do is uh, both broaden and deepen the stream of dialogue. So, you know, you can write forever in the Naval Institute's proceedings, which is sort of the professional journal of the naval profession. Or I've been writing a lot in recent years in National Review, a conservative uh, essayist, uh, you know, location. Uh, but the fact is, is we're not going to really uh, broaden and deepen the dialogue if we don't reach out to other uh, environments in different uh, audiences. So foreign policy had a totally different audience than what I normally write for. So I was kind of intrigued about uh, writing for them and then seeing what, how they would respond. Um, and so I wrote the essay. Originally, it was supposed to come out in the summer. Uh, it got pushed to the fall just simply because last summer things kind of got overwhelmed by other events. And so it came out and, and I, was, I was quite frankly shocked, um, you know, because foreign policy has got a great online presence. Uh, and it's also got, you know, this tremendous print circulation. And so the people that began to respond to me and reach out to me in places like Twitter or Facebook or even in LinkedIn to said they had read the piece was really tremendous. And so to, to my mind, I succeeded in the goal, which was this idea of reaching a new audience. And that's, that's kind of encouraged me to kind of step back and think about 
where else to write? You know, uh, what other professional journals or newspapers can I reach with this argument? Because it's really clear that the American people are not engaged on our national security or, or in, in particular the size of the Navy and why it's important right now. And so I'm, I'm really trying to reach, again, the people I haven't talked to before. Uh, so, so that's the challenge. And I think foreign policy taught me that that can help and that can work. Yeah, nice. And I assume you, uh, th- this new group of readers from foreign policy uh, are more people that are actually in policymaking, decision-making roles in the government? I mean, is, was it that? Yeah. Was it- I would say that they're more intellectually elite. Uh, they came from uh, different universities. Uh, they're more uh, East Coast, West Coast in their orientation. I would definitely say that they were center left in their political persuasion, which is great. Uh, because that's not an audience that I get a chance to speak with uh, often. And the fact is, is by writing in a historical sense, by, by caging the argument that sea power makes great powers, and here's historical examples of how that works, um, we were able to kind of lift it out of the here and now and the present politics, lodge it in a historical argument, but also engage in, in what I think is a nonpartisan way. This is a statement of facts. Uh, historical facts, historical arguments that are applied to the present situation. And it sort of depoliticized that to an extent. Uh, and and I, I, again, I appreciated that because that came across in the feedback that I got. Great. And uh, the article, when I read it, it's definitely one of those things, and, and especially in light of how it seems like the current administration is, uh, their view on on the Navy and the military in general, uh, it's kind of, it falls in line that, uh, you know, people who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Yep. So cycles. Yeah, exactly. So with that being said, kind of give me a, give me a rundown of, uh, of the article and uh, what were the points that you were trying to get across? Well, I I think the point there is that, uh, you know, we for a long time, numbers matter. That's really the the point here. When it comes to uh, uh, being a great power, certain types of platforms and capabilities matter when conveying great power to the rest of the world. And we know that historically, great powers uh, traditionally have essentially large navies uh, that are able to first uh, uh, create a new rule set on the way that the global environment is going to operate and then maintain and police that rule set. Uh, Whether it was Rome in the Mediterranean or whether it was Great Britain or I even mentioned, I think, Venice, uh, which was a a middle-aged Venetian trading power. The fact is, is they had large navies, they were able to create a rule set and they were able to maintain it. Uh, But what happens is at a certain point in time, uh, they either become exhausted or they get sort of stuck on a sunk cost investment and they stop that investment and then their fleet begins to decline and degrade. And then the international system around them also goes uh, the way of the willow as well. So, uh, So I wanted to raise that point because there's a lot of conversations right now about, uh, and one of the themes I pick up in the essay is uh, what we call a disinvest to invest strategy, which is I'm going to sacrifice and cull a certain portion of my existing force structure in order to free up funds to pay for new force structure. And that, that new force structure is going to be a game changer. It'll change the way that the world operates. And I won't need to be as big as I once was because this new capability is going to be so much more capable uh, that it will do more than, than the older platforms it's replacing. So I, I used a very specific example in the essay, which was uh, Jackie Fisher of the British Royal Navy at the turn of the, of the uh, beginning of the 20th century as an example of what happens when things go wrong. And, it, and I, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you before we dive into that, because I don't want to get too far ahead. But I wanted to show those sort of classic case uh, studies of this idea of a shrinking fleet, meaning uh, equating to a degradation of great power status. Yeah, and and that was, that was going to be my next point. And that degrade, degradation of great power status, i.e., your reduction of influence throughout the world. So, so, and that's one thing that, that concerns me is a lot of people in the United States don't even really think in those terms. They've got, you know, they got their, their cell phones, they've got their video games, they got a thousand channels on television and they're not really worried about what's going on all around us. Well, all around us, you've got China, you've got Russia who are going in the exact opposite direction militarily. And uh, I just, it, it concerns me because 
We saw what happened with with uh, England, especially uh, or Great Britain, especially at the end of the at the end of the World War II, when the the final nail was in the coffin of that empire. Um, you know, it, they they basically fell off of the world stage for for decades. And do you think? Uh, and we're going to talk about this in a second. This article that just came out. How close do you think we are right now to to that kind of situation in terms well, of I, our influence? So I, there's actually this thing that's a, that we've termed the Davidson window. So uh, back in March, uh, Admiral Phil Davidson, who was the commander of the Indian Pacific Command, Indo-PACOM, as we refer to it, he came and did, he was, he was retiring. So he came back to Congress and he gave his last testimony. And in his last testimony, he actually made the point that he believed that there was uh, a high likelihood that China would make a move against Taiwan within the next six years. So some of us have, have coined the phrase, the Davidson window, which is this, this area of vulnerability between now and, and let's just say 2026, when, when we believe that there's a high probability that China you know, will make this move. And so how do we fill the Davidson window? How do we block it, seal it, and so on? That's one of our major challenges. But I wanna go back to something you were just saying, which is that many of our fellow citizens seem to be unaware of sort of this threatening environment that we live in or, or the importance of some of these things. And I want you to, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure how old you are, so I'm not going to ask you. I'm 55 years old. Uh, so I was born in 1966. I can remember duck and cover under school bus desks uh, for Cold War nuclear blast type things uh, in the early 1970s. You know, the Cuban Missile Crisis was just a few years before my birth. So I grew up a Cold War uh, mentality. In fact, the initial part of my military career, uh, I was tracking Soviet Union submarines uh, during the, the first part of my career. So I, I definitely maintain that mentality in thinking about this. But if you think about the officers who are reaching two, three, and four-star rank today, uh, we are losing that Cold War generation. Most of these people who are in senior ranks now have come up in the 1990s and then in the early 2010s, uh, 20, you know, 2000s and 2010s, they have not, they did not go through the Cold War. And for that matter, most of the young people and 30 and 40 year olds today don't have a broad memory of the Cold War either. It's not part of their national consciousness. They have always existed in the world where the United States was preeminent, that it was the, you know, the, the, the only superpower, the hyperpower in the world. Uh, the rule set that we live under where free trade, free navigation, free movement of peoples is the only world that they've ever lived in. So they cannot conceive of an alternative reality beyond the one that we presently live in and they've grown up in. It's just an assumed condition of yeah. life. Uh, the problem is, is China and Russia, this, this is not part of their assumption. In fact, they look, and you and I've talked about this before one time, they look at this sort of state of grace or freedom that we live in as a threat because they're authoritarians. So they're out to like undo this. And, and our ignorance of this is actually part of our undoing. The fact that we just assume that what we have will always be um, means it gives them the, the window to kind of move forward. This is why we're slowly degrading right now. We don't recognize the need to grow the fleet or to strengthen the military because we've never lived in a world where we needed a larger fleet and larger military. Do you think uh, our how how uh, the current administration handled the withdrawal out of Afghanistan? Do you think that had any uh, impact in terms of waking us up to sort of the reality of our military influence and and our influence around the world? So I, again, I would think that it would. I'm not sure that it did uh, because and will you know ask me in another year. I mean, I think um, all Americans were suitably appalled. Um, at the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the abandonment of American citizens and our close friends and allies there, including people that were holding the proper identification to leave that country and come here. Uh, and I think that, that that plan or what we saw there, um, you know, I, I think that that shocked everybody at the time. Yeah. The, it also had huge uh, negative impacts upon our credibility. And I remember at the time I publicly commented that this would have implications for Taiwan. And I had people come back and says, no, Afghanistan and Taiwan are two separate situations. You don't have to worry about American credibility. It's like, look, you know, credibility is like oil. You know, there's no one price for oil in North America, another price in Saudi Arabia. Oil is what we call a fungible commodity. It's the same price everywhere in a global market. 
American credibility is fungible as well. A damage to our credibility in the Middle East or in Central Asia has implications for us in the Far East. So uh, the Japanese, the Philippines, Taiwan, they all looked at what we did in Afghanistan and it raised doubts as to our commitment to their security. Uh, and it's certainly China has actively sought to fan those flames of doubt at this point in time saying, hey, do you really wanna trust these guys? Did you just see what they did to their allies in the Middle East, or not in the Middle East, but in Afghanistan? Right. So I, I yeah, it, it, it really concerns me because it creates this slippery slope where we're sliding down into decline, uh, that perception of that on a global scale. Yeah, and, and one of the things that you mentioned that, that made a lot of sense to me when one of our last conversations, um, in terms of the Davidson window and potentially armed conflict with China, um, Obviously, the uh, the Beijing Olympics is coming up in February, so a couple months from now. But it seems, and, and, at, and at the time, your your kind of thought was nothing's really going to happen during that time. Obviously, because China's trying to put their best foot forward to the world and show the world just how great they are during the Olympics. Um, but it, it it seems like, at least in my view, just watching the news and what's going on and what China keeps doing, uh, it seems like they're going to go right up to that point and then stop for a while and then pick it right back up after after the Olympics. What, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think Afghanistan actually changed China's uh, calculus on, on everything. I think that up until Afghanistan and our pullout, they were thinking that, hey, we got to play nice until after the Olympics. We got to make hay while the sun is shining, improve our, our global uh, status. And then kind of like Putin after Sochi, um, you know, Putin went ahead and made his move uh, against Georgia as soon as he got his Winter Olympics over. Uh, and so I, I think that that was the Chinese plan. We'll get past our Olympics and then we'll make our move at that point in time. Right now, though, I think that Xi Jinping, who's just coming out of his party Congress and trying to get his third term in place and be president and emperor for life. Uh, I think he's looking at this and like and saying, look, my number one priority, my legacy uh, as the ruler of China is all tied to recovering Taiwan. And if I can recover Taiwan, if there's a window that opens that I think I can recover that before, during, or after the Olympics, he's gonna make that move because his number one priority is that long-term legacy issue for him in cementing China's position as the uh, first regional hegemon and then ultimately global leader. Uh, you know, he, they're, they're under uh, a time constraint uh, much as we are in many ways, their time constraint is they have to become great before they get old. Their demographics are really out of whack because of the one-child policy. And in by 2030 to 2035, you know, they're going to have one child supporting two parents and four grandparents. You know, that's, that's an upside down and underwater mortgage payment if I've ever seen one. Uh, and they know that they have to achieve their strategic goals prior to that, because at that point in time, they will be consumed by internal demographic challenges in their country. Hmm. The one thing that I find interesting about the upcoming Olympics, uh, especially in light of, of how China is treating Taiwan and how they're acting in the South China Sea, is there has been absolutely zero threat from any of the Western countries to do any type of boycotting of the Olympics. I mean, it seems like it, uh, that to me almost seems like they're acquiescing to to, to China. They're not. It doesn't even seem like they're trying. They're even trying to stand up to it. Yeah, there was a congressman from Florida who was an army officer who put forward a bill saying we should boycott the Olympics, much as we did in 1980 with the Summer Olympics in the Soviet Union, uh, because of what they're doing with the Uyghurs or what they've done in Hong Kong. And I think you know there's more than enough historical justification for that boycott. In fact. I've come out and said that we, we should boycott, like, but anyone cares about what I think. But, I, you know, the fact is, is I think uh, there's a greater demand on the part of the administration to try and not rock the boat, given all the business ties that we have with China and, and sort of that glowing. And they don't want to they don't want to give a reason for something to happen and go badly right now. I think that's a mistake. Uh, but that that seems to be where we're at. There are some voices, but there's not enough. Now, I did see the president has made the announcement that he wants a diplomatic boycott, that we will not send any diplomatic representatives or representatives of the U.S. government there. Uh, but that I don't think that that goes far enough. Quite frankly, I, I wouldn't be sending any U.S. athletes. I would withhold the legitimacy 
yeah. of U.S. attending this Olympics. And I would encourage our allies and friends to do so as well. Yeah, interesting. Um, does does the current does the current logjam with all the cargo ships, like for instance, I think the latest number is there's a hundred off of Long Beach right now, waiting to get into uh, L.A. and Long Beach. Is any of that have anything to do with what's going on in the South China Sea, or is that sort of an end? The the getting the getting the containers off the ships onto the docks and then out into the country. Is there anything that that's going on currently in the Pacific that has anything to do with that log jam right now? No, it's it's not really a South China Sea issue. You know, this is pent up demand uh, from the COVID year where and where we kept you know uh, sending money to people that they had nothing to spend it on essentially, and now they're coming out and the demand signals there. Thanksgiving, Halloween, now we're into Christmas season, the whole bit. And so everyone started to long lead those things. And we saw things like plywood and, you know, home construction materials. We got a huge backlog of demand. And then suddenly we let that out. So everything got ordered and, and China was desperate to start producing again because of the economic things that they were going through. And so all those ships started coming across the ocean to us. Now, there, so it's that demand signal of post-COVID. But there's also another part of this, which is, you know, uh, uh, California exists in its own economic world when it comes to things like emissions controls and what types of trucks and things can go there. You know, it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, I exist in kind of two different worlds. I call it my Twitter world and then my Facebook world. Twitter world is kind of dominated by my friends who are in the policy, strategy, naval history domain. Facebook is dominated by my high school classmates uh, back home in Northeastern Indiana. I've got some classmates and family members who are truck drivers. Uh, so they got semis, they do long haul trucking. And I've been told uh, that essentially they, they take no jobs west of the Rockies because essentially California's emission controls require that those semis that operate out there in California, you know, have to meet certain mission requirements. They have to be of a certain age. And so there's, there's something like 85% of American trucking fleet that's essentially barred from operating on the state of California. So when you see that backlog at the Port of Los Angeles and, and upwards, you know, up the coast a little bit, uh, that backlog is also artificial in the means of sort of California's regulatory yeah. uh, oversight of that. And that's one of the reasons, you know, we could flood the zone with semis and get all those containers out of there. But there's trucks that simply cannot go into California by because of the of the state's laws and regulations. Yeah. Very uh very interesting that whole uh, energy question, especially after uh, especially after uh, Glasgow last week. Yeah. We we won't get into that. Let's uh, let's touch back on the uh, on on your essay. Um, one of the things that that I found fascinating is okay, as Great Britain's navy started to de decrease in size, obviously their influence started to decrease around the world to the point yeah. where it essentially after after world war ii it really was just kind of a uh you know kind of a side player are they back to any sort of naval prominence or is it is it is that gone and it's gone forever so you know they're building back up obviously they're, they build up you know two aircraft carriers and they're building up a, co a company strike group so they're getting uh essentially a destroyer size ship that can be doing air defense and they're looking at building new frigates that can do uh anti-submarine warfare and anti-surface warfare they're coming back but it's a long road back uh for a nation that once was the sea power in the world and i'll go back because we, we sort of just briefly touched on it but you know in in uh, 1903 1904 uh admiral lord jackie fisher who was kind of this uh god amongst navalists you know he came into power as the first lord of admiralty and he wanted to modernize the British Navy and reform it. And he really wanted to get a new type of battleship, the all big gun battleship uh, into the fleet. But he, he was given a flat budget by his prime minister. And so Jackie Fisher's answer was to call the fleet. So he ended up cutting some 150 ships out of the Royal Navy, which were smaller ships, cruisers, older ships, et cetera. And he pulled, you know, he cut those ships, he cut those crews, and he cut British commitments to overseas, so like presence operations in some of their distant theaters, um, and did that without really fully understanding the implications of that. Um, so, and then he plowed all that money into these new battleships, the, the Dreadnought class, HMS Dreadnought, which made all previous battleships obsolete, which was, so this, this action had, had two effects. One, it destabilized the global international arena and that US, uh, the Britons 
uh, Great Britain withdrew presence from overseas. But then the other part of it was that um, it, it also destabilized the situation and that it flattened the playing field. Because once Dreadnought was built, all previous British ships were kind of obsolete at the same time that all their contemporaries. So they all started from zero. So although Great Britain had always had an advantage in technology, when it leveled a playing field, it essentially did away with that numerical advantage as everyone began to build the new Dreadnought class uh, battleships and cruisers going forward. This is, problem, this is the problem with the disinvest to invest strategy in that you, you sometimes have unintended consequences and you may level that battle, that battlefield. So let's fast, flash forward to today. So Great Britain today, you know, it went through a massive decline in the British Royal Navy following World War II. They had a thousand ships at the end of World War II. They got down to little uh, over a hundred uh, during the 1980s and 1990s. Wow. And they're just starting to build that back up today uh, as they begin to make their investments. And so Great Britain is out. Queen Elizabeth, um, their, their flagship uh, aircraft carrier is just doing this round the world. I think she's in the Med now, having gone across the Atlantic and then across the Pacific, uh, been operating in the South China Sea, and, and she made a stop in the, in the Arabian Gulf area. Now she's in the Med and she's heading home, uh, you know, this year-long cruise. Uh, and she's accompanied... Uh, both by British ships, Americans have come alongside. By the way, she actually has U.S. Marines and their aircraft embarked on board her. Really? Because, um, yeah, the Brits didn't have enough uh, airplanes, F-35Bs purchased yet to fully outfit their air wing. And so part of the process, we made an agreement with them that we would embark a squadron of Marines on board the Queen Elizabeth. And so those Marines, and, and you can understand this, those Marines have been on board a ship that doesn't fall under the U.S. Navy uh, restriction against alcohol on board ship. <laughs> they have a bar on exactly. board the Queen Elizabeth. So those Marines have lived a life that they will never live before and they'll never live again uh, for the last year. So they're, they're on their way home right now to Great Britain. And then those F-35Bs will be ferried back across the Atlantic Ocean uh, home uh, to rejoin us uh, next year. Yeah. So the Brits are rebuilding and their Prince of Wales uh, aircraft carrier is also at sea doing its workups now as well. Now, uh, and this actually is a perfect segue to what I was just thinking about here. And that is, um, so you've got the, uh, what's the latest carrier class? Is it the, the Harold, the Gerald Ford? Or, yeah, Jerry Ford. Yeah. And so are those carriers, are they getting up towards that type of capability? Or are they still pretty far behind? Now, and then the next what, following question is, China is now coming out. I think they just came out with a couple of other carriers that they built. Where are they in terms of that, that concept of the dreadnought sort of flatten the curve in terms of uh, capabilities of the, of the uh, equipment? So let, let's start with the Brits first. Uh, I, I've, been, I've been a previous critic of actually the Queen Elizabeth class aircraft carriers because they're stowable uh, carriers. They're short takeoff vertical landing right. carriers. They are not what we call Kato bar our catapult and a resting gear uh, uh, equipped aircraft carriers. So what does that mean? That means that those aircraft, the aircraft coming off that carrier do not have as long a range as American aircraft coming off from our aircraft carriers uh, because they burn a tremendous amount of gas taking off in a short takeoff configuration. And they burn a lot of gas trying to land back aboard that in a vertical way. Yeah. So now the Chinese, their first two aircraft carriers were Stovall carrier, carriers as well. Uh, but they were working out what it was to have carrier flight operations and, and to do you know carrier uh, aviation. The word is that the third aircraft carrier that the Chinese is, are building right now will be a Kato bar aircraft carrier which means it will have additional extended range for its embarked fighters. And the Chinese have been working out carrier cycle ops, you know, what it is to launch a wave of airplanes and then recover them in a sequential and rapid fashion back on board. Only the Americans have really been a master of carrier cyclic flight operations. But the Chinese are fast students and they're learning. And in, in probably less than 10 years, they may be on par with us with regard to carrier flight operations. Wow, that's and you know it just kind of goes to that that concept with the Chinese. You know the the people at Boeing said we uh, you know we sell fleets of aircraft all over the world, but we only sell one to China because they take it, reverse engineer it, and build it the exact same thing themselves. How are they getting that? I mean, 
I, I guess I intellectual theft, intellectual property theft, and all of those sorts of things. But it just seems like they're coming out almost weekly with uh, hypersonic missiles, um, space capabilities. We might touch on that later on. And then this aircraft carrier. I mean, it's almost like two years ago, there's nothing out of them. And then boom, all of a sudden, they're right there at the forefront of technology. We, what China is doing is kind of what we did with Great Britain, which was, you know, the Brits created aircraft carriers first. Uh, and then we created an aircraft carrier, our first one, about a decade after them. The Brits created the angled deck and catapults, and then we borrowed that capability from them uh, after World War II. And then, uh, and then right now, so you see the Chinese, they got their first aircraft carrier from Russia with the Variag, which they uh, moved in and sort of converted it over for their use. Uh, and now, the, essentially, they're actively borrowing. You know that they're downloading everything they can off the Internet about how it is that we operate our carriers, catapults, steam catapults, uh, you know, how we do flight deck operations. Uh, I've always thought the, the person that we need to be most careful about is what we call the handler on our aircraft carrier, the guy who knows how to run the choreography of the ballet of our flight deck, um, you know, because that person, uh, that, that's a long-term prior enlisted guy who made his well, way up to warrant then becomes LDO, probably been in the Navy 35 years, and he's worked on a flight deck all of his career. Yeah. Uh, and so he, that, per, that person is the one that can probably tell the Chinese the most about uh, U.S. Navy aircraft carrier operations. Uh, but it's clear that they have actively downloaded and stolen or copied uh, everything that they can, and they are coming along at a tremendous rate right now on the development of aircraft carriers, uh, moving, as I said, from Stovall, to a Cato bar carrier in a very rapid fashion, probably yeah. less than 15 years. And, and is that, is, are, are they, are these ships, are they quality or is it your typical Chinese where, you know, they build a ton of stuff, but it's not necessarily the best quality or where is it in, in relation to what we have out there? So I think, you know, in, in much the same way that we went through an evolution uh, if I was to go out and try and sink the Chinese aircraft carriers today, they're probably a lot easier to sink than ours are. Um, probably we have great uh, damage control, more compartmentalization, more armor uh, in the right places. I think that they're buying, uh, borrowing a lot from their civilian industry, which means probably that they're a lot more fragile. That being said, in sort of the pure uh, metric of aircraft carriers, which is how many airplanes can I take off and then how many can I land in a set period of time, they are rapidly advancing in that basic metric. And so, you know, at the beginning of the war, uh, they're going to be able probably to launch about two thirds the number of airplanes that we can and recover those. Um, you know, uh, but once we start sinking things, yeah. I think the dynamic of that war changes fairly significantly. Gotcha. And, and, and uh, in terms of that, uh, what's the concept? Divest to reinvest? Invest. Invest, yeah. yeah. Divest so, to invest. And, and so obviously we're doing that right now. You, you got articles of these um, these new ships coming out, the Austral, I think I'm pronounced Austral, USA Christian 13th Spearhead class EPF yeah. ship. Um, so we are definitely building some really high tech stuff, but the numbers are going down, whereas- they're starting to build some high tech stuff. Where are where are we in terms of parity in terms of the numbers of ships in each each, each navy? Well, we we believe that they have around three hundred fifty to three hundred seventy ships in their fleet right now. We have uh, just shy of, of three hundred in our fleet. Uh, now everyone will come back and say, "Well, our ships are much better," and they are. They're much more capable uh, than the Chinese ships. Um, in fact, you know, a lot of those Chinese ships are uh, are coastal uh, corvettes or frigates they really can't go that far. They can only operate within the first island chain. Uh, they, they really only have about 50 to 70 larger surface combatants that can actually range across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, but the fact is, is they only have to be great in one place. We have to be great everywhere. Uh, that's a problem with us being the superpower. And, and that's a problem that if we, if we become not great everywhere, meaning if China is able to establish local dominance in the Western Pacific, that puts a lie to our entire global system because they can demonstrate that a nation can carve off a sphere of influence yeah. in a place. And then Russia will carve off the Arctic. And then sort of this global structure that we've created begins to crumble and degrade at that point in time. So they are larger than us. Uh, we are better than they are. But the fact is uh, our ships can only be in one place at a time. 
Uh, that's the that's the problem with naval presence. I still have a requirement to maintain a ships in 18 maritime regions of the world. China really only has to maintain a presence in three. Uh, and if they dominate in those three, they can win that local battle. And then once they roll us back in a local battle, they can roll us back on a global scene. So that's our challenge right now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and obviously Russia is kind of the feeling feeling the same way. We, we, we're not necessarily talking as much about Russia, but they're doing the exact same thing. Like you said, in the Arctic, maybe in the Black Sea. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They have, they have 40 icebreakers. You know, I think six to nine of them are nuclear powered. They are set to dominate the Arctic uh, environment, uh, which is increasingly important because of energy supplies and trade that goes on up there. And we in the West, whether it's the United States, Canada, the other members of NATO, we really just don't have that many uh, platforms that can operate freely in the Arctic. U.S. Navy doesn't have any Arctic-rated surface ships. Uh, and our, our submarines that are Arctic-rated, like the Los Angeles-class improved and the three Seawolves, uh, you know, we're getting fewer and fewer of them. The L.A.s are beginning to retire. We just had a Seawolf get knocked out of action for a couple of years due to this collision with an undersea mount uh, by uh, the Connecticut. So we're we're in some uh, we're in some real hurt in some of these areas. So there's two areas where you know great power competitors of ours are going to be able to carve off a sphere of influence, and again, that will serve to degrade the entire global system. Yeah. Um, so so that submarine hit basically a mountain, an undersea mountain, an uncharted, wow. as they said, an uncharted undersea mountain um, in the South China Sea. Uh, there's a lot that uh, will be interesting to read that accident report once yeah. it comes out. I, I did note that the commanding officer, the executive officer, and the chief of the boat, or what we call the COB, uh, were all um, relieved of their positions on board the Connecticut uh, you know, after the initial investigation. So clearly, uh, set processes and procedures were not followed. This seems to be kind of a repeat of the 2017 collisions uh, with the McCain and the Fitzgerald, this time just with a submarine. Yeah. Um, you know, because if, if they relieve these guys, it's because there was a process that they should have been doing that they didn't, and it resulted in a collision with, a, you know, an immovable object that yeah. did uh, damage to that boat. And, and the, uh, the, the, that mishap, um, is that a trend? So we're trending now, we're, we're reducing the number of air, our ships. Are we also reducing the training? I mean, it, um, are both of those kind of going down at, at, at the same time or? Well, it's, it's, almost, uh, it's almost a requirement. So there's some really fa fairly basic math here, which is it takes uh, generally three to four ships to keep one forward deployed. And normally in, in the old days, we set this, what we call an interdeployment training cycle or an IDTC um, that was about two years in length. And you had two years, you would go through a workup where you would uh, uh, be trained, uh, then you would deploy, and then you would come home, and then you would go into maintenance. And you generally had, you know, that was all divided. You know, there was like uh, months that were spent coming and going from deployment, there was six months on deployment, there was a training period, and then there's a maintenance period. Today, when you get down where the fleet is smaller than what it needs to be, that means it has to cut into that two-year cycle. So in order to keep ships forward deployed, you had to cut someplace. And generally, we cut both in areas of training and we cut also maintenance availability. So we're seeing uh, a lot of our ships that are finally getting into the yards for their overhauls and repair. We're finding that there's greater corrosion and damage and more systems that need to be replaced because we put off maintenance in the past in order to keep them forward deployed. Uh, we got cruisers, our Ticonderoga class cruisers are going in right now into dry docks. We're opening them up and we're finding that the, the tanks inside them have much greater corrosion uh, and there's greater issues with the keels and the stays and the ribs on these ships and it's taking longer. Well, that just puts back the training or uh, the maintenance of other ships that are waiting to get in that dry dock because we don't have enough dry docks. So you can kind of, we call this a cascade failure. Um, where essentially you put these things off, you ask the fleet to do more than it's capable of doing, and it ends up, you know, causing sort of this cascade failure as things begin to really decline and accelerate a death spiral. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of where we're at right now. And, uh, and in terms of uh, the Navy's trend, is that, has, how long has that, has that been going on? How many administrations would, I guess, 
is are responsible for what we're what we're doing right now. Well, I I really see that the breaking point where the fleet begins to break was around uh, when we dropped below 350 ships. So we dropped below 350 in 1997. We crashed through 300 just a few years later in early 2001. Uh, we bottomed out at 271 in I think 2014. We've been slowly trying to eat our way back up. Um, we have a goal of a minimum of 355. We really need to about 456 to operate effectively. And so as long the as long as we remain below 350, we you know we are eating our seed corn to use a, an agrarian analogy, uh, where we're we're taking away from both training and as well as maintenance. And the fact is, is one of the big problems the Navy has had is that the Navy will not say no. So when uh, civilian political leaders came and say, hey, I need you to maintain these ships and this forward presence, the Navy says, aye, aye, sir. And they get underway, regardless of whether that ship is ready to deploy or not. And I think only in the last few years have we really begun to have a conversation about saying no. Um, and of course, that's, that's putting a lot of pressure on the civilians because all of a sudden, they, and, and by the way, this is bipartisan, you know, uh, both parties, uh, Republican and Democrat, have got this issue where they now are saying, well, what do you mean, no, I need you to go. And, you know, why didn't you tell the other guy, my predecessor, no? Well, we, it's, it's simply because of the collisions of 2017 and then the fire on Bonham Richard and now this collision with the Connecticut that we're really seeing it like we're in crisis. You know, the, the Navy is stood into shoal waters and we are in danger of grounding. Uh, if we don't turn this around. And yeah. so we really do need to kind of take a breather. But in that breather, we will open a window of opportunity for the Chinese, because when you create a vacuum, vacuums beg to be filled by something. And the yeah. Chinese are more than eager to fill that vacuum. Yeah, that, that actually surprises me because you're talking that's across Republican and Democratic administrations. Yeah. And you generally think that Republicans are more military focused, more strong military, strong U.S., um, but they were still, so what, what, what was causing, where was the pressure coming from to, to reduce the size then? Well, I mean, after, after the, uh, cold war, you know, we had the peace dividend. Yeah. So, you know, we were sitting at 592 ships in 1989, you know, nearly 600. And then we won, we won the cold war. So, you know, we need to have a peace dividend. We need to reallocate some of this money. You know, we cut a hundred ships in one year, wow. uh, after the cold war. Um, and, and we just started laying ships up because, hey, we don't need it. And peace will be eternal. It's kind of like, you know, uh, you know, eternal peace, uh, you know, Emmanuel Kant's book. Um, and and the, that was never going to work out. So, you know, once you started this downward trend in the 90s, like I said, we crashed through 350 by 1997. So what? That's eight years after the end of the Cold War. And we'd already dropped 250 ships in eight years. And then we, we passed through 300 in the early 2000s. It's very hard to turn the industrial base around, especially when you told the industrial base to pack up and go home and consolidate. So, you know, after World War II, we had 50 plus yards in the Navy or in the nation where we could build ships 500 feet or greater. Today we have 14 wow. and we're only really using seven of them. So, you know, we failed to manage our industrial base. And so now that we're asking, like, you know, we would love to pay, uh, General Dynamics Electric Boat and Huntington Eagles to build more submarines, but they are maxed out and they are having a tough time finding workers who will come in and be welders, pipe fitters, electricians uh, to work in that shipyard. And by the way, you know, you look at Electric Boat and it's sitting up in Groton, Connecticut. Do you know how hard it is to get a high school student to graduate high school in Groton, Connecticut and decide that they want to go to work as a welder <laughs> when everybody else in their family is going to Brown and Yale? Yeah. to get their degrees in economics so they can work on Wall Street. You know, yeah. you know the, the fact of the matter is, is we need to be building places like along the Ohio and the Mississippi or in the Great Lakes, where there's still sort of blue collar populations who are willing to get up, you know, in the morning, get their lunch bucket and go and work. Uh, yeah. But we build in places like, oh, Virginia Beach and Groton, Connecticut. Uh, and and those, are, those are hard places to find uh, workers. Mm -hmm. The... Um, Let's let's kind of project out here. Let's kind of project out here from from where we are with uh, with your essay. Um, how sea power makes great power, and the exact opposite is true. Do you see a time when uh, China steps up and they control the South China Sea all around Japan, 
Philippines, Taiwan, that whole area. Is that is that is that imminent or is there something that can be done in the meantime before that happens? They think it's imminent. They think it's imminent. They think that they have a window and they think that window is only open for about the next 10 years. Okay. Uh, after that 10 years, their demographics go one way. Our demographics go the other is our baby boomer population effectively exits uh, stage right. Uh, and we're able to sort of recapitalize and we have a different tax base and et cetera here. Um, we're in a much better place in the 2030s, which is why we like to talk about the 2030s as the solution point. But the Chinese understand that their competition is in the next 10 years. So they're putting pressure on Taiwan, on the Philippines. There was just an incident here in the last couple of days where the Philippines were sending out some resupplies to one of their uh, detachments. It's out on one of, uh, uh, one of their, uh, their off, offshore shoals, uh, about 100 miles from the Philippines, but still within their EEZ. EEZ. And the Chinese intercepted the resupply boat and used high-pressure hoses to keep the resupply boat from reaching the Philippine detachment and, and forced them to turn away and go home. So they used non-lethal means to drive these away, but the Chinese claim that shoal and they want the Philippines to give up its claim and they're using threats of intimidation against them. And, and we failed to uphold the Philippines in the past when we could have, and now we're playing a catch-up game there. The Japanese are feeling the pressure too. Um, if Taiwan goes, uh, the islands that are just north of Taiwan, which Japan claims, the Chinese claim also. So right now, the problem here is if we allow, uh, let's just say that we allow uh, China uh, to take not Taiwan, but one of the small islands just to the south of Taiwan that Taiwan claims. Um, and we allow that to happen and we don't step in and help the Taiwanese defend their territory. That'll be just another uh, drip into the pan of loss of U.S. credibility going forward uh, in that particular region. And and I, I guess, and I don't want to don't want to say anything political here, and you don't have to answer if, if, yeah. if you don't want to. But is it if we had a new administration in there that would that would that make any difference? Okay, so I'll, I'll be fair here because President Trump, um, you know, announced that he wanted to build a three hundred fifty ship navy. And then nothing really happened. We, we didn't really expand the Navy. You know, the Secretary of Defense Mattis didn't get behind that. We didn't see much forward motion on growing the Navy under President Trump. The one thing that President Trump did do is he destabilized uh, China's perceptions of what Americans would do uh, because Trump was unpredictable. He truly was strategic ambiguity uh, because he was out there, he was imposing trade sanctions and right. he was becoming much more aggressive and bellicose with his use of the American military. And so the Chinese were hesitant to take an action during the Trump administration because they weren't sure how he was going to respond. Now, the Biden administration has a much more engaging um, foreign policy. The, you know, they, 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 like for instance, this uh, President Biden just did a, uh, a late evening uh, uh, video summit with uh, Xi Jinping, Chairman Xi. Now, what was interesting about that is we, we looked at that and in, in our press, we promoted that as a, you know, something that was really good and positive that the two leaders met and they had a fair, you know, free and frank discussions. What the Chinese talk about in Chinese media is that Joe Biden stayed up really, really late at night so he could pay homage to Chairman Xi. The Xi was able to do banker's hours that day and the Americans came uh, as supplicants on Xi's schedule to talk and meet with him. You know, the fact that, you know, if we were the great power, if, you know, 10 years ago, can you imagine, uh, you know, uh, George Bush or even Donald Trump staying up late to talk to anybody? You know, it's like, no, you, you come to me, you yeah. be on my calendar and on my time. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, the way this gets played, we need to be uh, very sensitive to what, what the, uh, the Asian uh, community calls face. Who's gaining face? Who's losing face with all these things? And I think the Biden administration has set themselves up in a face-losing situation vis-a-vis -vis China. Yeah, it's uh, it just it, my my personal take on on everything that I'm kind of watching happening to the military and, and military in the news. It just seems like there's a there's a concerted effort to reduce our capability kind of across the board. It, it, that's just my that's just my view of watching the news and reading the news out there, and it's yeah. a, it's a shame. 
Yeah. Well, it, definitely we've seen a decrease in the size of the military, you know, over the last 20 years. Uh, even, you know, if you look at it, we, we had a tremendous plus up in the, in the budget of the military during uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, but we spent it all on operations. We didn't spend it really on infrastructure. So the Navy didn't grow, despite the fact that the Navy's budget grew significantly during the last 20 years, but the Navy in terms of ships and aircraft didn't grow. We spent it, we sp took all the money and we spent it on operations. Um, so, uh, and, and the, uh, the Army and the, and the Marine Corps also kind of went through that same process. They did grow in terms of overall manpower, but their, their equipment got old and we need to replace all that equipment now. So uh, we're, we're really in a very difficult position right now. Yeah. It's interesting that you earlier you said, uh, you made that comment about Mattis and Trump. And I find that interesting as a, especially as a Marine, uh, he, he, you know, he was touted as this, this military, this great military mind. And, you know, obviously he turned into a, seemed like he turned into a politician when he, when he, got that job, but why would he have been against increasing the, the Navy? Mattis's number one priority when he came in and it never changed was he saw that there was a readiness hole in the U.S. military, that we were behind on things like maintenance and training. And so Mattis says, if you give me one extra dollar, I'm spending it on, on recovering maintenance and training. Mm -hmm. I need to get all of the Army to go out through you know, its special training in order for those Army units to get back up on step. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing with the Marine Corps. And so Mattis's near-term problem, as he saw it, was recovering the military from the exhaustion that it had due to overseas deployments. It was not, he was not going to buy a larger Navy until he had the money for the maintenance and training that went with that larger Navy. And the Congress didn't give him that. And I, I don't think that he was forthright and clear with President Trump on that. I think the problem in many ways is that General Mattis never stopped being General Mattis. Um, I think he was much more comfortable in going talking to the Joint Chiefs as four-star to four-star than he was in talking with his civilian staff. And so there was never sort of the public dialogue, public conversation that would have gone along if his Deputy Secretary of Defense or his Undersecretary for Policy had been involved and was communicating what was going on. But instead, he talked with the chairman, who was Joe Dumford, a fellow Marine, uh, and they kind of were working things behind the scenes uh, and not really talking a lot with the president uh, about that. And, and I don't think it was actually until uh, Ambassador Robert O'Brien got into being national security advisor and O'Brien, who had been keying on a larger Navy for a long time, for the better part of a decade in his public writings, started to bring a lot of scrutiny on, hey, what's actually going on over there? Yeah. And started to ask Mark Esper by that time some serious questions about the size of the Navy. And the Trump had a plan in the last year of their administration for really growing the Navy, but then they didn't get reelected. So, you know, boom, we're back to zero at that point. In time. Yeah. All right. This is actually a perfect uh, segue into, uh, and I thought I had printed out a copy of it, but um, before, before we, uh, before we went on the air, you sent me a text with a uh, link to a wall street journal article. And yep. uh, it was just, it was perfect timing because it's exactly what we're talking about. But what is that? Can you kind of talk a little bit about that article yeah. and what, what they're saying in it and how it relates to your, to your essay? So I, so actually I wrote this uh, Wall Street Journal essay and it just came out uh, today. It'll be in tomorrow's uh, on Friday, uh, Friday, uh, November the 19th, for those who are watching us on delay, uh, Wall Street Journal. But what I, what I call out is the Navy, Naval Aviation in particular, has been extremely focused on this, this new program that they're trying to do, the Next Generation Air Dominance Fighter, NGAD is what they call it. And, and again, it, you know, the, the, we don't know much about it. It's very highly classified. We know that it's going to be, quote unquote, a family of systems. We know uh, that it's going to be a larger airplane, something more on scale with the F-14 Tomcat uh, than, than the F-18, as well as the F-35, and that it'll have longer range. Uh, but we also know that by its own name, next generation air dominance, that it's going to be a fighter jet that's focused on maintaining air dominance in and around the aircraft carrier. Uh, and to me, that's a continuation of naval aviation's blindness towards um, its loss of its ability to do long-range penetrating strike. So ever since the A-6 went away, the A-6 Intruder, which was a long-range medium attack bomber, 
the Navy really doesn't have an ability to go a long distance and hit distant targets. Uh, and, and so uh, I just said, hey, look, the Navy's kind of lost focus on the environment that it's in, that, you know, the Chinese are pressing us farther and farther from their shores with these missiles. And we have no airplanes that can bridge the gap from the aircraft carrier, which has to operate a thousand miles away to be able to hit Chinese targets. They can hit us all day long, but we can't hit them. Um, and so, but rather than focus on a long range penetrating strike fighter uh, or uh, attack aircraft, not a fighter, um, the Navy has chosen to go with this next generation air dominance. And again, you know, there, we, we talk about the tribes, you know, in the Navy and, and in the Navy, there's, you know, submarine surface and then aviation. But even within aviation, there are tribes. Uh, there is the fighter community. There was the attack community. There was the maritime patrol community. Um, and the attack community has virtually gone extinct. There are no voices talking about long range attack. And so I wrote this essay, uh, which comes, came out in the Wall Street Journal, essentially saying, hey, look, you know, the Navy, naval aviation in particular, has lost sight of the strategic environment and the strategic uh, requirements that are out there. Forget about NGAD. Yeah. Uh, get me a long-range penetrating bomber. Uh, and, and to me, I think that has to be unmanned because of the ranges that are involved and the time scale. Because I'm here to tell you, uh, I don't know how you felt sitting in a seat for a long period of time. But if you're in an ejection seat for more than 10 hours, you've lost circulation in your legs. And it's hard getting an airplane back on board the carrier after an 11-hour profile. I talk with guys that used to fly from the carrier in the Bay of Bengal uh, or uh, off from Pakistan up into Afghanistan. They would hit the tanker a couple of times on the way up, hit the tanker on the couple of times back. And when they're coming back in to land on the carrier, they were having trouble getting their feet to work to hit the pedals to keep that plane lined up Crazy. on the glide slope coming yeah. in. So, you know, unmanned really is your answer for this thing. But naval aviation seems to want to avoid the unmanned conversation with regard to having a real mission on the carrier deck. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it, this just uh, came to my mind as you're talking about this. And it, we talked about it earlier about the idea of copycat technology. I just read an article about that new. Um, Soviet jet that uh, that basically looks almost identical to the F-35. I think they call it the Checkmate yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it's supposed to be, I guess, the, the big uh, selling point of this thing is it's like a quarter of the price of what an F-35 uh, costs. But it just, yeah, it, it, I, it seems like we're, we're going for the shiny new, really cool little toy, as opposed to, you know, the, the tractor that's not going to break down. is going to, going to plow your, your yeah. field. Well, that's, that's why, you know, the, my first big breakthrough article, like in, in uh, 20, 2009 was called buy Fords, not Ferraris. Uh, because I saw in like our ship building that we were really interested in the high end exquisite sports car. When in fact, what I really need to focus on, you know, buy me a pickup truck, I don't know about you. I, I got a Ford F-150. It's sitting out here in the driveway right now. And when I go uh, away, like I go to my hunting camp in Maine, you know, I put my generator, I put my water jugs in there. I put all my, my food, um, you know, and I, I take my rifles and my shotguns. Um, so my truck uh, is important, but what's really important is what goes in the back of the truck. Uh, that's the mission. So if I bought me some more trucks um, and I worried more about the weapon systems and the missiles, then I think we're in a much better place. Uh, but right now, we really should be really interested in exquisite sports cars that, quite frankly, maybe won't have the effectiveness in the combat environment that what I really need them to. I'd rather have a truck with a lot of missiles and weapon systems shoved in the back yeah. of it. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. That's a, tough, uh, that's a tough mindset to change, though. Yeah, especially, it is. It really is. Yeah, especially with when you see some of this technology, which is just well, unbelievable. Again, go back to Jackie Fisher in, in the original essay we were talking about. He invested in an exquisite platform, and he really thought he was going to get himself a long-term advantage. What he ended up doing was leveling the playing field, and he found himself even farther behind than what yeah. it was. That destabilizing environment, it helped create the conditions of World War I. So, you know, to me, this disinvest to invest is like, you know, it's, it's based on assumption that we have all the time in the world to get to where we need to go. And I got a, I got an enemy right now who's looking within the next six years to come after us and our interests. Yeah. Um, so is it, is that what it's going to take to, uh, to turn the direction of our Navy, turn the trajectory of our Navy around? 
that conflict. And I, I, go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I think it's going to take strong civilian leadership. I, I think the military and uniforms right now are blind to the problem because they're part of the problem. They've grown up in this system. Um, you know, I can give you, you know, examples, but it, it takes strong civilian leadership who understands the Navy and as an institution, uh, has respect for it, but has enough of a perspective from the outside to step in. That's why, quite frankly, I, I do have some hope for Secretary of the Navy, Carlos Del Toro, our current SECNAV that's just come in. Because Carlos actually, you know, he made 05 in the Navy. He commanded uh, an Arleigh Burke class destroyer. Uh, and then he got out. He, he was selected for 06 in major command. But he got out and he went out and he built his own business, became a multimillionaire uh, as a businessman. He's been out for 20 years. Now I think he's got the perspective to come back in and, and look around the table and say, hey, boys, what we're doing ain't working. You know, we're, we, we've reached that strategic inflection point where everything that got us to where we're at ain't going to get me to where I need to go. So I'm, I'm holding out hope because he's got the DNA to be a change agent. And that's what we need in leadership. And it can only come from the civilians at this point. The uniforms don't have the ability to change. Yeah. And uh, just one last question to close out the, uh, the essay, sea power makes great powers. Uh, what's the, what's your final, is your final take? Is it optimistic or is it pessimistic? Or did you just answer that question? I'm pessimistic as hell right now. I hate really? to say that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, because uh, again, it's an uphill fight for the current secretary. Uh, I'm hopeful for him. I really am. I'll, I'll, I'll be behind him and cheer him on the whole bit. Uh, but the power of the bureaucracy and the size of the bureaucracy is so difficult to get around. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and this is a world that will not forgive mistakes. And we make them on a daily basis. I mean, the loss of a Seawolf class submarine for a couple of years. You know, one of the things about that, uh, the Connecticut being damaged, we don't know where we're going to repair. There's no access or availability in any of our repair yards to bring Connecticut back, put her into a dry dock, you know, clean her up and repair her. Uh, all those dry docks are spoken for. So, you know, whatever this does, it's going to set us back by a couple of years at least. Yeah. So it, it's a challenge. Wow. And, and you know, kind of going back to one of the first thing you, you said, and that is the general population in the United States, they're, everything is so good other, you know, in their world, in their little cocoons, life is great. And I, I don't even, I mean, I guess, this is a very depressing way to look at it, but even if something were to happen, a, a armed conflict with China is that, I don't even know if that's enough to shake the general citizenry into getting back on that, that being serious about that footing. Yeah. I think it really does take uh, a Pearl Harbor, nine 11 Sputnik moment event. Now I will tell you, I mean, we just had a Sputnik moment. The Chinese just flew a hypersonic weapon around the world and then struck within a few miles of their target you know, went pole to pole uh, with, a, you know, fractional orbital bombardment system. I mean, this is Star Wars stuff. Uh, it, it, it revealed a greater vulnerability than Sputnik did in October of 1957, and we didn't notice. So, you know, no sense of history uh, amongst our current population, no sense of awareness out of net, you know, outside of their Netflix-driven world. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think it's going to take almost a 9-11 like event, direct attack upon the United States and its interests, the loss of American lives before yeah. everyone wakes up. And the problem with that will be is that Americans are uh, are uh, they can go from uh, zero to 100 miles an hour in being angry. And we have a tendency to overreact when we're initially uh, attacked. Uh, but then we also have an inability to maintain uh, the pressure for a long Just yeah. look at the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, everyone would say, oh, 20 years was long enough. It's like, well, you know, uh, five years was long enough. The reason to stay in Afghanistan wasn't Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda. That wasn't the issue I was there. I was interested in remaining in Afghanistan because of China and Russia. Yeah. But we don't think strategically any longer uh, as a nation. You know, we exist in wonderland and we think we always will. And and that's the thing I, I tell people, I'm like, we, we still have troops in Japan. We still have troops in Germany. Yeah. So, yeah. And, yeah. and we're not, we're not there to keep the Nazis down in Germany anymore. I mean, at <laughs> or, some point, yeah. at some point in time, we changed over and we recognize that it's not Germany that's threat. It's the Soviet union. And it's we the never, had, yeah. yeah, we never had the conversation that said, okay, 
we're in Afghanistan and we're having really, you know, low level losses. Every loss is a tragedy, but it, and at a minimum cost, maintaining 2,500 people there, we had Bagram Air Force Base, what I call one of our space shuttle airfields, because it's long enough to land a space shuttle on. And I was sitting in China's backyard. I really wanted to stay. I wanted to keep the pressure on them strategically. Yeah. And we, we lost it. We lost perspective. Yeah, man. Yep. Um, anyway, hey, it, on that delightful note, uh, thank you for having me on today. No, uh, that, that's awesome. And, and I, I'd actually, I'd love to have you on again uh, yeah. to talk about the, the space race that's going on right now. And especially because like you said, I don't think, I don't think that even ever made the news that if it did, it was a very small snippet about the Chinese, uh, that hypersonic missile. All right. Well, I'd, I'd love to talk with you about that. And I've got some stuff I can send you. Perfect. Perfect. All right, guys, this is the Rain Man, Jerry Hendricks. Thank you very much. A fascinating conversation as ever. Thanks for watching Rain Man's Take, Observations on the World We Live In. If you like the content, don't forget to hit the subscribe button below. You can also follow Rain Man's Take on Instagram at Rain Man's Take. Also, check out our website at www.rainmanstakepodcast.com and send your comments to rainmanstake at gmail.com. Keep an eye out for future podcasts, which will be coming out every Thursday at 5 p.m. West Coast time.